Sales Tuners, Episode 31, Steve Richard, Chief Revenue Officer at ExecVision. I was failing badly when I first started, and uh, it was one of these look yourself in the mirror in the bathroom moments, and it's like, all right, well, what am I going to do? Because if I failed, I in my mind, now interestingly, I come from a family business of septic tanks, so I thought I'm going to go back and work for my Uncle Jim in the septic tank factory. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's Sales Tuner's time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Steve Jobs, who said, your time is limited. Don't waste it living someone else's life. My guest today says his life's work is helping sales professionals become wildly successful. Steve Richard has started three companies with that dedication of the betterment of sales organizations and continues to do so today as Chief Revenue Officer at ExecVision. I've seen him motivate people from the conference stage. We bonded over our shared love of scuba diving, even though I was jealous that he's already got to dive the Great Barrier Reef, and he made me do a double take when he told me he almost got into selling prisons after college. Before we dive in today, I want to let you know about an upcoming event that I'll be at. The AAISP Leadership Summit is in Chicago, Illinois, April 18th through the 20th. I've got the founder, Bob Perkins, with me today to tell you a bit more about it. Bob, this is the ninth annual summit. What's actually going down? It's going to be really the world's largest gathering of inside sales leaders to get together, to learn, to network, and to share with each other. I know this event is focused on sales leaders. As I see today's guest, Steve Richard, is actually set to speak. And you've got Jill Rowley, Kyle Porter, just to name a few. But who else should be attending this? We also have a a good contingency of sales operations, marketing, sales enablement, even some HR folks. So it's anyone that's involved in advancing their inside sales teams or organizations at their company. Now, you can't have an event in downtown Chicago without cutting loose a little bit. Are there any parties going on after the sessions? Oh, man, it's going to be uh, unbelievable this year. Microsoft, uh, as you know, has come in as our title sponsor. Part of that is we're all being bussed down to Navy Pier. We're going to get on this huge mega yacht that'll hold up to a thousand people. And we're going on a dinner cruise and we're going to have a great time. Bob, this is great. I can't wait to see you here in a couple of weeks in Chicago. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you as well. Thanks for having me. All right, Sales Tuners. If you want to join me and over 700 other sales leaders, check out aa-isp.org and get yourself registered. As an extra perk, every event registration also includes an annual membership to AAISP where you can network with others as well as download more resources and research than you could get through in an entire year. I hope to see each of you there. Now back to today. Make sure you stick around until the end of the episode where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 31. But now let's get to the conversation where Steve gives a bit of background on how he got close to slinging prisons for a living. So here's the backstory. I know that a typical listener for you for this podcast is someone who's getting into sales. When, when I first uh, was looking for jobs coming out of Georgetown, Everyone just goes to Wall Street. The expectations to go to Wall Street. So 
I went and in, in, interviewed at investment banks, consulting firms. I went 0 for 22, literally 0 for 22. And I think that was God's way of telling me, don't be, don't go to Wall Street. This is back in 2002. After 2001, so it's not the worst time to have that realization. So I got, all right, I have to pay off $60,000 in school loans. What am I going to do? And I asked a couple friends at school who introduced me to older friends that were already in the workforce. And they said, boy, you know what? I remember, Steve, you were never really good at the projects in the business school, but you were good at selling. So I went to sales interviews and like many people at that age, I thought sales was all about like cars and stuff. I didn't know what it meant. And um, I went five for five for sales interviews. So one of those was a company called Old Castle Concrete. And uh, it was precast concrete prisons. My mom was seeing a guy at the time that was uh, that was working there as a welder, a guy named George Block, great guy. And uh, he got me in with the, the, the general manager of the, of the East Coast or something. And, and I came a hair's breadth away from from selling precast concrete prisons and get ready for it. They also use these things for schools in the Midwest and places like that because it's almost like Tinker Toys building the stuff. That's hilarious. And, and the reason why it is for me is because literally in my hometown, we are, our, our county jail looks like an elementary school and one of our elementary schools looks like a county jail. So that's hilarious. And now I know why. I bet you dollars to donuts it was old castle. <laughs> that is incredible, Steve. Let's let's talk about you know what your world today. Uh, tell me what what does your sales process look like today? How does someone decide to buy from you exec, at Exec Vision, and, and and what is that? Yeah, so it's, 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 sales process has always got to be aligned with the buyer's journey, and with Exec Vision, it's a fairly evangelical concept. No one's ever thought of. Um, call recordings is game tape. I don't even like using the term call recording because people hear that and they think call centers and they think customer service and quality assurance and all those kinds of things. But in the modern sales organization, we measure everything. We don't measure the conversation. We don't really understand that what that engagement looks like with the buyer. And we more or less shoot from the hip, which leaves managers and reps to do one of two things. Either A, have the manager sit with them on the phone at the, t at the time or do the ride along and then give them feedback, or number two, try to wade through this big, huge pile of call recordings, and it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to do basic things like, well, I want to share them, I want to score them, I want to write some comments on them, I want to listen to them on a mobile phone during my commute because I'm too busy in the office. All these things that you want to do to start to mine all of the um, conversations that are out there, all the engagement you're having with buyers, to find those signals, to get the signal through the noise, that's all the stuff that's missing right now. Uh, so what we're doing with Exec Vision is we're helping people uh, make a whole lot more of what we're referring to as their conversation assets to use them in a ton of different ways. And that's the interesting thing, Jim. There's a ton of ways. Obvious ones are onboarding, training, coaching, performance improvement, those kinds of things. But then there are other things like I just got off the call and they said, hey, well, we want to take the demos that we do. We want to share them back with the buyer and put some comments on them so that the buyer can send them to others in the organization and get them up to speed. Great, easy, easy thing you can do. Or, boy, I'd really like to, to give some insight and feedback to marketing so they can improve their campaigns so we can get better leads because I'm talking to the buyers and these leads we're getting are not right. But if marketing heard this, if they could hear select parts of the call, they can learn from that, improve the campaign and get better buyers. So there's a ton of use cases for our conversation assets and we're just at like, you know, the bottom of the first inning. So going back to the sales process, because it's evangelical, what we need to do here is a whole lot of education to help people realize what's possible. One of the ways we're doing that is this thing called Call Camp, 
where we break down and analyze real sales calls for what works and what doesn't. Then after that, we have to help people identify well, what are they trying to accomplish? How are they going to define success? Why would they even want to start going back and having a, a coaching cadence to review their calls or build a library of the best calls? You know, are they trying to reduce ramp time to productivity for new hires? Are they trying to increase the conversion rates within funnel, like stage one, stage two, stage two to close? What's the thing they're trying to do? What's the commitment to that? And then after that, how do they, how do they think through their options? Um, usually we're competing against nothing. So it's either do nothing or buy us. Um, so we usually have people get their hands on it and do a trial of the software because when you see it, they start to click, they get it and go, oh, you know, I understand how I can use this now. And then, and then finally after that, we get them started and we have a really in-depth customer success process where we help people do things like put call review sheets and processes in place like call scorecards. That's a big one that people don't know how to do. You know, they always say, oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to have an objective a framework for evaluating what is a good call. What is yeah. Every, everyone says that. I mean, I hear that all the time. Yeah. So, and, and we, you know, our customers are 50 customers are doing it. Um, you've got a lot of companies out there that want to do it and, and they're excited about it. So actually I'll probably see you at the inside sales association, little plug for them. The AISP in Chicago, my session is all about surprise, surprise, how to build your own coaching scorecard. And we're going to bring up a couple of our customers and we're going to learn how they did theirs and then identify best practices for deploying. Got it. Yeah, I will. I'll be up in Chicago here in a few weeks. So we'll definitely look forward to that. So I, I want to unpack a lot of what you said, Steve, but, but before we do that, you know, as you know, this show is all about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success. And so I, I know you haven't always been the great successful person that you are today. So I want to go way back and, you know, you, you got a degree in finance. How in the world did you even get into sales? How did you get those early prison uh, uh, interviews and sales interviews going? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was one of those things where um, <laughs> most most people who are interviewing uh, kids out of college for sales roles are not looking for sales degrees. That's changing, of course. We're seeing more sales degrees out there, um, but but they're really looking for other uh, you know business undergrad business or or uh, liberal arts kind of folks. So when I got the interviews, it, I find it wasn't really hard to get those interviews as opposed to getting an interview with Goldman Sachs was hard, but it wasn't that hard. Uh, and then when I got those interviews, I was just myself, you know, now, now here's the deal. I took corporate executive board over the prisons and I'm really glad I did. No, I'll, I'll, I'll do respect to the prisons. Yeah. That, that's, I think that's a good choice. Yeah. Um, you know, but I mean, look, it was actually less money too. Um, but I called it the university of CEB. That was an incredible experience being surrounded by a bunch of really smart people. And I was failing, I was failing badly when I first started. And, uh, it was one of these, look yourself in the mirror in the bathroom moments and it's like, all right, well, what am I going to do? Because if I failed, I, in my mind, now, interestingly, I come from a family business of septic tanks. So I thought I'm going to go back and work for my uncle Jim in the septic tank factory. And, um, and as it turned out, I, 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 I sat down at my desk and I said, I'm not going to let myself fail at this. And I think a lot of young salespeople have this experience. So where my mind went was what I'm doing doesn't work. So my instincts are wrong. I thought I was going to be this natural. I was dead wrong. I had to go and learn from the people that were good. So I, I took a little notebook, a little white notebook. I walked all around the office and I sat next to all the top people because we had a leaderboard at the time. And this was a job where it was essentially, you could think of this as what we call SDRs now, mostly on the phone, mostly calling. I sat with them and I watched what they did. And we were only getting meetings with CIOs of big companies or CFOs or GCs. So it was C-level executive only. They wouldn't even pay you if it was a direct report. It had to be the C. 
So um, it was through that process of failure and being humbled and then realizing what I'm doing doesn't work, going and learning from the best, implementing things that seem odd. They weren't always natural. And I, I kind of learned to play a role, if you will, at work and find my sales voice and develop my own personal character professionally. And that's what led to our outsourced appointment setting business foresight. Well, so, so hold, hold on, though, before you go there, though. So what were some of those failures? What were you struggling with, Steven? And what were you what were you looking for with uh, with the other reps that you were shadowing? Oh, I couldn't I couldn't get uh, I couldn't convert. I could get a, a CIO on the phone, but I couldn't get him to convert to take a meeting. Hmm. I don't know what to say. I didn't know how to say it. I didn't know how to approach the conversation. I never had a business conversation. It's actually one of the things we talk about with exec vision now all the time is, and Jim, you can probably remember this. Think back to the first time you had to make a call. Oh yeah. How, how did you feel? You know? Um, and, and that to me, I thought I could kind of get myself out of that, but it took me a while. It took me a couple of months, two, three months. And then I, I got, got out of my own way. So that was that was a that was a tough thing. Then you know, throughout my sales career and throughout my career building sales oriented businesses, I've had one failure after another. Back in two thousand eight, we lost our second largest client, uh, and they it was it there was no real good reason. They were called the VC. Um, there was no real good reason. They just dropped us out of the blue. I mean, everything we heard up until that point was you guys are doing a great job, awesome, awesome. But what we didn't know at the time, being a couple of I was in my twenties when we started this business. What we didn't know is we had to be able to prove and demonstrate ROI to the C-level exec. So all the managers and the reps loved us, but we couldn't prove ROI to the C-level. So they dropped us. Funny enough, those people ended up leaving that company and going to other companies. Later on, they had us come in. They ended up contracting with us again, and they said, it's not your fault. It was almost like this you know, Matt Damon, Goodwill Hunting moment, like, it's not your fault. Um, and at the same time, you learn that lesson. Give you another one. When I was in the sales training business, so the sales training business came about because people were asking us, "Wow, your your people are really good on the phones. What do you? How do you teach them? How do you get them to be so good at this?" And again, it went back to my story of failure and learning the best practices and experimenting and failing and and iterating and failing and iterating. So I was selling sales training at the time to uh, Rosetta Stone. A new VP of sales, a guy named Rob Mercer, came in. All of my my contacts there again all said we're loving everything we're definitely going to re-up with you for next year it looks good send us send us the agreement we'll get it signed it's just a, it's just a formality but rob wants to meet you so i went into the meeting thinking okay this is just a formality i'm going to say hi shake his hand tell him what we did show at that point i knew what roi was show him some of the roi which we could demonstrate and uh and as it turns out he grilled me for an hour completely interesting yeah because uh, because Here's why he was in a country club. I didn't know this at the time with one of our competitors who's now a friend of mine, a guy named John Costigan. So I was competing against John Costigan and he and John Costigan were like buddies at a country club. And the lesson I learned from that is relationships go deep. And if you get out relationships, you're dead. So, and, and that was completely unknown to you. You, you were competing against a shadow that you thought didn't exist. Com- completely unknown. And later on, after we heard we lost, and by the way, he put us through the ringer. We jumped through hoops, proposals, all sorts of stuff. When we lost, I went on LinkedIn. I looked at I looked at our common connection. We had won. Hmm. And it was So the reason I share wow. these stories is to say there's no you always hear there's no better teacher than life. But I, I what I'm concerned about for the young salesperson right now, and I see this happen, is they're they're not understanding how failure is a part of the process. 
and they're not taking the lessons from failure in the way that I saw people in my generation. I don't want to play that generation card, but I, I actually think there's something to it. Take the lessons from failure and then use those lessons to move on. And we have to all accept the fact that we're not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes. That's part of the process. Yeah, no, and- I, I, I'm totally with you there. It, it's funny, Steve. I remember the first time I heard you ask the question you just did a, a few minutes ago that, you know, remember or think back to the first cold call you ever had to make. I, I, I kid you not. When you asked that question, I got goosebumps because I know exactly where I was. I know exactly who I was calling on. And I remember that I stared at the phone for over a half an hour and just sweating and I could not make the call. When I finally made the call, I had to do it three times because every time they picked up, I immediately hung up because I just, I I lost it all, right? And then when I did actually uh, make the call, it was terrible, it was so bad, it it just, but but it, it was that, reluctance to not understand what I had to say or what, um, what to say to them. I had no clue what they were going to say back to me and all that kind of stuff. So you had these failures, uh, early on, you had these stumbles, you were reviewing other or, or sitting with other reps and reviewing what they were doing, but why didn't the company you work for just kind of in- enable you or right? Like train you to do the things you need to do. Why weren't they, they helping you? You know, they, they put you through onboarding, but and the manager would kind of give you some moral support. But the reality is that it's up to each individual person to own their own career and, mm-hmm. and I and own their own development. And I, I ask people that question frequently when I go talk to groups or I, I go to a company. And this is, I'm going to credit Andy Miller on this, a guy named Andy Miller, who would be a great guest for you. Um, he's a local DC trainer consultant guy. Uh, he's done a lot of, a lot of work there. Um, he, he will just say, who owns your development? And it's, it's it, these guys walk in the trap. Oh, no, it's this person in the company that owns my. No, no, it's not. It's you. You own your own career. You own your own. You get to choose. We had Jim Keenan here today, another great guy for the show. He spoke to our team in our outsourcing business, about 30 reps, SDRs for hire. And, um, and he said, uh, you know, did anybody, is anybody forced to be here? Did any one of your moms tell you you have to work at this company? People laughed. You know, nobody raised their hand. Well, he goes, if you you're here by choice, why not be the best you can at it? Why not be the one percent? When he describes one percent, his whole thing is there are 14 million salespeople in the U.S. So the top one percent is like you know 140,000 people. Put yourself into that category. Put you know that's possible. Being number one, that's that's very unlikely, right? But put yourself into the category of thinking and having the mindset of being 1%. Now, I want to go back to something you said before, which is interesting about the, the call and, and life being the best teacher. There's actually neuroscience behind that, Jim, which is fascinating. I've learned about this since. If you ask anyone what's the most vivid memory from their life and you give them some space and silence, they inevitably come back to one of a few things. One is a personal injury story. Two is some sort of a traumatic situation. Or three is some sort of a very highly emotionally charged, happy situation, the birth of a child, getting married, that kind of stuff. So why is that? And here's why. When your emotions are extremely high or there's a high level of anxiety, a high level of the different brain chemicals like cortisol and stress hormones and that kind of stuff, in those kinds of situations, our brains are programmed to like essentially burn those memories into our brains and create stronger neural pathways. So later on, we don't forget. And that's the reason why it's so important to have these 
these failures along the way because those are the lessons you don't forget. And then when you see that pattern happen again, like I'm always leery of relationships now when I'm in a competitive situation. What's my competitor and what's their relationship? I'm going to LinkedIn. I'm not making that same mistake twice. Another example of one when I was selling sales training one time, there was a group of buyers and they were one of these classic like silent and they're not going to tell me anything about their situation or their company and they're just basically like, show me the goods. Like what do you do? And, and I'm trying to do discovery and I'm trying to identify needs and everything. But in their mind, they were later in the buying process. They were at the part of the buying process where they were evaluating options. So for me, the only chance I had was to show them the goods. Now, now, now how, how could you have known that? How could you have known that, Steve? How could you have known that they were at a later part of the buying cycle than, than where you thought they were? My, my guy who brought me in, he said when he brought me in, hey, they're talking to this other vendor. It's a competitive situation. Here are their criteria for evaluating. When you hear that kind of language, that's got a signal to you that they've already well-defined the problem, the need that they're trying to solve for, and now they're at evaluation of options. Your only hope at that point is to give them what they want, which is you know do the dog and pony show, be prepared to not ask questions and do consultative selling, but rather just do the, the, the pitch. But then double back, circle back, and try to say, well, Based on what I'm hearing, it sounds like your needs are this, but maybe your need should be that and try to get them to, to change their evaluation criteria, their buying vision along the way. And I messed it up. I just tried to do discovery, you know, a really solid. And, and this guy later on actually even wrote an article about the, the situation. He didn't name me, but he said, here's a sales rep who did amazing discovery, but it totally fell on deaf ears. And as it turns out, we chose his competition. Why? He didn't align his sales process to our buying process. So there's so many lessons like this along the way, lessons of failure, that unless you've lived through that and have a few gray hairs, it's hard to replicate them. Mm -hmm. But I just want to see young people doing, and this is if young people take nothing else away from this, remember this, you own your own development, you own your own career path and fail. If you don't fail, you're not going to learn. You're not going to, you're not going to have that neural thing happening in your brain where it burns the memories in your brain and you will fall into the same potholes over again. So fail, learn from them, and then move on. So I, I'm with you here, right? It, it is definitely up to each individual to own their career, own their own development. But but how does then uh, coaching play into that? I, should I not expect coaching? Yeah, yeah. That, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, coaching is the thing that everyone says they're going to do, but they don't do. Um, no, you, you shouldn't expect coaching, actually. Um, you should earn coaching. Interesting. And what do you mean by that? We, we work with a lot of management teams. Now I'm talking exec vision here. So when we deploy exec vision with companies, um, they actually, we just did this with BMC software one of our customers in North Carolina, worked with their management team. And, and they said, well, how do we handle salespeople? So we're dealing with managers here, Jim, right? How do we handle salespeople that don't want to be coached? And you know what the answer is? I don't. Don't coach. Don't coach. Uh, huh. I mean, because, because, it goes back to what I said before. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. If the salesperson doesn't want to get better, if they have no desire, if they um, uh, if they resist, if they oh, and then there's also the whole thing around trust and if they feel uncomfortable. But as long as the environment's right and they don't, they're they're not willing to do that. Being coached and mentored by someone is a privilege. It's not a right. And that's what I, I get very concerned about. I see a lot of sales reps that view it like it's somehow a right. It's the company is they have to provide coaching to me in a certain way or own my career path or tell me what to do next. Like this ain't, you know, going through grade school, middle school, college like this. 
this is the real world. You you choose. You get to do what you want to do. You live in America. If you don't want to choose, go to another country where you don't choose what you do. Interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm buying it. I'm with you. I mean, I, I've always been one about, you know, personal responsibility and, and just, um, you know, taking care of yourself before, before anyone else should have to, but, uh, I've never heard that. I, I truly haven't. So, but at the same time, Steve, you compare listening to sales calls the same as a, as a pro uh, sports coach watching game film. So, so help me better understand that. Yeah. You asked for coaching. You know, the, the interesting thing is, I, we've got this team of 30 folks out here, Jim, and then I've got my own sales team for exec vision of another four. And I get a few, but not a lot of people who will, who will listen to their own call. They'll write some comments on it using our software. They annotate it. They, they score it using our software and then they share it with me every single time they do that. And I'm one of the founders of the business. Every single time they do that, I get back to them. I, I listen to the parts that they select or I, I go selectively hear other parts, I identify keywords in the call, I type some comments out, and then they get notified of it. So that's what I'm talking about. Like when, when they ask like that for coaching, it's the leader's responsibility to provide it. So that's a caveat to what I said before. The leaders are absolutely obligated. If you're a sales manager or a sales leader, you're obligated to provide feedback, coaching, support, mentoring to people who crave it, to people who want it. Otherwise, what the hell are you doing in that job? Go do something else. So, so for those folks, absolutely. The key to the whole thing is how do you create the right culture? We um, actually, the, the, the last two days, I've had Jim Keenan on site here. I mentioned him before. And we, we were talking about a problem statement. We're trying to solve a problem statement. The problem statement is how do we help companies transform so that they have a coaching culture that's sustainable? So how do we have a sustainable coaching, coaching culture in a company and, and that's that there's a lot to that. There's a lot that goes into making that really effective. But the simplest, simplest thing you have to do to start is have a bunch of people that have desire. If they want to be good, if you listen to recorded calls, if you have an environment where it's positive and productive, where people share best practices, not just with managers, but with peers, where we're open to hearing something that's not good. You create a place that's safe to fail. That's important. That's what leaders do. They create a place that's safe to fail. And then ultimately, the reps have to be the ones to say, I want this experience. I want this uncomfortable, awkward experience of improvement. I'm with you. When, when, when you can create that culture that allows for that, you see so many good things come out of it. But it is, it's, it's almost as if we have to be perfect or we assume that we have to be perfect in today's world. And well, I, I hate to break it to everybody, but we're not, I'm not, I, I don't think you are, but uh, we're just, we're, we're afraid to take that step. But so I was kind of thinking the same thing along the lines of your problem statement as I was you know, doing some research for our call today. I, I can't imagine that listening to every conversation can scale and, and, and that it's sustainable inside of an organization. So how do you overcome that? Oh, heck no. That would be crazy. It would be absolutely insane. What you do is you implement a program where people listen to one good and one bad or select one good or one bad call per week and share it with the manager that provides feedback that later on the rep reviews. That's a great way to do it asynchronously. Another great way to do it is, is to do a call of the month contest. Every rep, every month selects their best call. This is a good way to make it positive and productive because we all have really, really bad calls. You know, we have to dwell on that. If they know what they did wrong, what's the point? You know, it doesn't make any sense. But instead, focus on the positive. You go in and identify the reps identify or the managers identify the best calls. They share it up to their manager or share it up to the VP or whoever. And then you play the winning call in front of the company and you play the calls that were the runners up. So there are lots of ways that you can make it part of the fabric and the heartbeat of the organization. And 
you you know we've heard that that phrase culture eats intentions for breakfast so if if you have some intention to do something but the company culture isn't such that it happens automatically it's, it's almost like driving with the flow of traffic you know like like if the traffic's all going a certain way in, in a certain flow you're probably going to drive about that speed too so it's, it's how does a leader create the environment where the traffic is flowing in a certain direction such that coaching culture is very much on the table and once you create that kind of environment it's remarkable how it just happens organically you know we we see peers sitting with each other reviewing each other's calls in our break room all the time and that's not something that's being mandated or forced it's something that's very organic because they're going to make more money i mean they're going to do better in their career they're going to improve you got to have a mindset of kaizen if you care about your profession if you care about your craft jim keenan talked about this i loved it he said he said, what's the difference between a job and a craft? The difference between a job and a craft is in a job, the person just does what they're told. If it's a crafts person, they look at what the outcome is and they objectively look at the outcome and say, how can I do this better? I'm not just going to do what I was told. I'm going to improve upon what I was told. I'm going to do it better and I'm going to take my work seriously like it's an art. That's the difference between the best salespeople and everybody else. You know, I, I'm, I'm truly fascinated by that, Steve. My guest last week actually talked about this, this concept of a win wire. And so with her team, because you're you talking about this call of the month program, which I love, and I'm, I'm taking notes, I'm going to steal that. But she calls it a win wire where she takes one deal from the month that was awesome and basically puts together an overview of who did it, what happened, what the problems are they were solving, the situation, all that, so that she can share that with the team. And just by sharing it with the team, they all start to get ideas like, oh, okay, I can call on this person and I can offer this and I can do that. And just this this concept of a win wire, it was fascinating. So love the call of the month. Steve, um, real quick. So how do the reps uh, and the managers take what they're learning from these calls and then actually put it into practice? Right? You know, cause, and here's why I'm saying that. Like I've, I've had reps that I can't even get them to take consistent notes, right? Even though we're reviewing it. So how are they taking the feedback or the, or the game tape, if you will, and actually putting it into action? They focus on one thing at a time. And that's the huge mistake that people make. They try to focus on too many things. So we pick a skill. Let's maybe the skill is effectively asking for time if you're an SDR, or if you're an AE, it's effectively um, uh, creating an agenda uh, and objectives at the beginning of a call to guide and direct the call. Or maybe the maybe the skill is objection handling, or maybe the skill is um, asking uh, questions but always asking the third or the fourth question, or maybe the skill is closing the call for next steps. But whatever that skill is that you're focused on. Focus on that skill for a period of 21 days until it becomes habitual. Use scorecards to guide it, because at first that skill, you might only score it a one out of five, and then it becomes a two out of five, and then a four out of five, and before you know it, it's a five out of five. They're doing it the right way. And, and as a result, their conversion rates are higher. They're making more money on their commissions. Everybody's happy. Now we focus on the next skill, and we work on that. So focus on one thing at a time and put it into practice. Practice it in role play, and then put it into practice back in your work on the phones or in person if you're in person and come back and track that performance over time. You do that rinse and repeat process with one thing at a time, no more than one, people get better. Yeah, that's the, I like that. I we got to get to break here in just a second, but uh, I, I got to ask you know you've you've been in the space for a long time. You've listened to a lot of calls both on your team. And you've also have a lot of reps that you work with at your company. What's the biggest thing that you see them constantly uh, do that, that causes them to lose control of the sales process? Ah, that's a good question. Um, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. 
Boy, that's a really good one. That's a really good one. Um, not listen. So what I mean by that is they have a direction for the conversation in mind. They have a, a, a play, if you will, if it's a sports play. And when the play breaks down, they can't go Aaron Ross. They can't scramble out of it. And rather than listening to what the buyer says and based on what the buyer says, calling an audible and saying something different or asking a different question, letting it be a conversation. Instead, they just plow forward with their agenda. As a result, the buyer is sort of confused and bewildered and it doesn't create a good experience. Uh, wow. That was good. That was good. Steve, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales tuners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Sales tuners, Octave has built a sales productivity platform that streamlines the workflow for creating and managing your sales documents. Everything from presentations and quotes to all of your proposals and contracts. They can pull data from your CRM, CPQ, and ERP systems, saving you time and accelerating each sales opportunity. Octave has been around since 2010 and now serves more than 400 organizations. I'm talking global enterprises, guys, like GE and Siemens, national brands like Angie's List and FedEx Office, and even industry innovators like Double Dutch and Linda Mood Bell. You've got to check them out. Go to Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com to learn more. And hey, during your demo, be sure to tell them you heard about them on the Sales Tuners podcast. We're back and it's time for the money round. Steve, are you ready for the money round? Throw, throw it at me, Jim. <laughs> Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Waking up early and being a morning person. All right. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell your 22-year-old self to spend the next 30 days doing? Get really good at understanding the buyer and listening, really paying attention and listening on a deep level. Yeah, you alluded to that earlier. I, I, I totally like it. Uh, Two-part question for you here, Steve. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose. Oh, it's all day I hate to lose. And, and, the, and, the, re and the reason why is because, uh, um, because if you love to win and you celebrate winning too much, you're going you're gonna to keep losing. There's, there's a reason why... Um, uh, you know, Nick Saban, when, when you see him win the national championship, like, you know, every other year, it seems he, uh, he, he almost isn't content. He almost isn't content in Belichick too. They're, they're that way. If you want to be the top of your game, I, I don't remember the deals I won. I remember the deals I lost. I, I just had to take a note there. That's fascinating. That comparison to Saban and Belichick, because it's so true immediately once they win, it's on to the next, right? It's let's, let's go. So, um, Steve, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? The Joshua Principle by Tony Hughes. It's a great coming of age story and it's perfect for the people who listen to this podcast. You have to uh, buy that. The Joshua Principle by Tony Hughes. I think it's also called RSVP Seller. You got it. There we go. So sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Steve's recommendation of the Joshua principle, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30 day trial of audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. Steve, what's something that you believe that nearly no one agrees with you on? I'm a little bit of a maniac, Jim. So, um, I believe that people should should plug in on vacation and a lot of people, I catch a lot of flack for that because I, you know, I, 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 I'm just so focused and I'm, I'm so passionate about what I do. So maybe they're all right. And maybe, maybe I should, when I go on vacation, not go and do any work at all, but that's a hard thing to do for me these days. Got it. Got it. What's the biggest piece of advice, Steve, you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? 
read, read. Um, it was something that came up today in this session with Keenan. You know, we have a business book library here at our company, Boresight slash Exec Vision Gym. Uh, we, we, we subscribe to all sorts of magazines and periodicals like Wired and Fast Company and Inc. and everything. And I'm, I'm really shocked at how infrequently people check those books out and use the, read, read those magazines. And my old boss at the corporate executive board, Mike Archer, he said, you read everything you can business. You read everything you can sales. You build up that business acumen. It was the best advice in the world. I'm going to get you out of here on this one. How could someone find you or connect with you if they wanted to today after the show? Super easy. Um, connect me on LinkedIn. Please send, send me a LinkedIn connection request. My cell phone and my email are right there. It's remarkable. Almost nobody ever calls me to sell me something. They only call me to buy. And then most importantly, get involved. Do the uh, Get involved with the call camp, our movement here, where we break down and analyze real sales calls for what works and what doesn't, just like John Gruden on ESPN breaks down tape. So uh, you can also submit your call and we'll have experts analyze your call. We do these monthly. They have generated a huge response. We typically get 500 to 1,000 people on one of these things. So please join the call camp movement. If you look up ExecVision call camp, C-A-L-L-C-A-M-P, you can sign up right there. Steve, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jim. Have a great one. One of the things I like most about Steve is he just owns everything. He's so focused on what he's building that you can sense the passion in his voice. But whenever something doesn't go his way, he knows he's the only one to blame. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, failure is a part of the process. No one remembers the deals they win. They remember the deals they lost. And there's a psychological reason for that that's rooted in the scientific makeup of the mind. When emotions are extremely high or there's a high level of anxiety, our brains are essentially programmed to make us remember those moments. Instead of letting those moments haunt you, turn them into opportunity. And once you accept that mistakes happen and move on, it's easier to choose to learn something from almost any sticky situation. Number two, you determine how successful you become. It's much more common to fail at the start than to become the next overnight success story. What you do with that knowledge determines the path you'll take. It's up to you to decide. You own your own development. If you fail, own it. Because if you don't fail, well, you're never going to learn. Number three, focus on one thing at a time. Take time to review calls, either on your own or as a team. Instead of repeating the same mistakes over and over and expecting different results, review your calls. Find out what works and focus on one thing at a time and put that into practice. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you have questions you'd like me to ask our guest, please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. Be sure to sign up for our email list where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. All right, I hope to see you next week. Until then, let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there!